This is the third episode in a four-part podcast series looking at a new comprehensive research by the Media Innovation Center at the Aga Khan University in Nairobi in collaboration with the DW Academy. Focusing on media viability in three East African countries, Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. I am Dickens Olewe. In this episode, we look at internal and external threats against quality journalism. Thank you, Dickens, and it's good to be here. My name is Rose Kimani. I work for the Chivele Academy as a project manager, and I was involved in this project, uh, the research project that we are discussing today, as uh, one of the people managing the research. And I'm happy to present our key findings, which we have gathered over the past two years. So uh, on this episode, we are talking about journalism quality. So maybe I would just say that um, we looked at journalism quality in terms of looking at what are the resources dedicated to news production? Is there editorial independence? Is there commitment to production of quality content? What are journalist salaries like? Is there fact checking going on and so on? And so we found that for organizations that reported that they were ensuring journalism quality by having all these aspects I've mentioned, there was a positive relationship in terms of innovation. For those that said that they had these practices in place, they also tended to be ranked as more innovative. And one thing that we also found that uh, we found interesting was that both managers and journalists in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania are quite young. Less than a quarter are 50 years old per country. So then this suggests that news organizations are losing talent, they're losing experience, and maybe that journalism is not a sustainable profession in the middle age. And so then that makes us question how that would impact journalism quality. Uh, At the same time, we found that in the three countries, there was some pressure and intimidation on journalists, whether it's from advertisers, from government, from uh, uh, other funders. And in Kenya and Uganda, the more pressure and the more intimidation there was, the less likely the employees were to view the organization as innovative. But in Tanzania, there were very few reports of harassment and intimidation, and there wasn't a clear relationship between uh, reporting harassment and intimidation and being innovative. Um, And when it comes to payment, both managers and journalists agree that they are paid regularly in all three countries, but, uh, only a quarter of the managers and journalists agree that they are paid enough to attract and retain qualified journalists and that they are paid enough to discourage unethical behavior. And the last thing that we looked at was organizational capacities, that is um, the ability of an organization to do a couple of things. So one of the areas we looked at was staff diversity. Are there enough, are there many women? Are there people from marginalized groups in the media houses? And we found that most media organizations ranked themselves very highly in terms of this staff diversity. And yet in our findings, we found out that most of the journalists and media managers were overwhelmingly male. For the media organizations that answered per country, about two thirds were male and only a third were female. And when it comes to media management, the number was even smaller. It's only about a quarter that were female and three quarters that were male. And then one of the lowest ranked organizational capacities that we found was organizations developing 
cooperative partnerships or relationships with other media houses to share their resources and content, which then implies that media houses are not so much networking on the media landscape to ensure their own survival. And Joseph Elunya from the Center for Investigative Journalism in Uganda. The phrase quality journalism, I mean, what does that actually mean? How can I tell what quality journalism is? Well, when we talk about uh, quality journalism, we would refer to a professional way which lives up to, which meets the, the required uh, professional standards, ethical standards. That to me would be quality journalism. The journalism that leads to, uh, that uh, practices the tenets of journalism, of uh, independence. In terms of quality, you know, following up uh, the way the way the story is uh, is collected gathered if, um, if it's reporting from the field does it meet uh, the standards are all voices included is it balanced that to me would be quality journalism okay so if, if I hear you right is that yes journalism that meets the standards uh, of uh, of reporting but has a utility to it uh, in the sense that it's uh, has some uh, impact in the society. Is, is that, uh, would that be a fair way of uh, capturing what you've just said? Absolutely, yeah, because journalism uh, must uh, actually exist to serve uh, society. So journalism that serves the society, that would be, yeah, quality journalism would demand that uh, what we do actually serves the interests of society and it's done in a professional and accountable manner. Uh, Rose, I want to bring you in here um, again, just still talking about, uh, you know, quality journalism. Uh, you, you have, uh, the research looks at uh, external factors that might um, uh, undermine or kind of almost prevent journalists to achieve the, uh, uh, the standards desired when producing content. Um, so give us a, a sense of, uh, you know, the experience of journalists in these, uh, in the three countries that, uh, the research, uh, looked into, uh, what is the experience of a Tanzanian journalist compared to a Ugandan compared to a Kenyan? Uh, thank you, Dickens. Uh, I would say that, um, we actually found it quite interesting comparing the, international news reports versus the self-reporting that we got from journalists in these three countries. Because for instance, uh, both Kenya and Uganda reported that they had journalists who were arrested or physically attacked. And that is uh, for Kenya, this was about 40% of journalists. For Uganda, this was 52%, but in Tanzania, only 12%. Uh, when it comes to verbal threats, again, Uganda and Kenya had a high amount of this at almost 80% for Uganda and over 60% for Kenya, but Tanzania was just 29%. Then in both countries, there were, uh, the journalists reported that they ha either had to kill a story because of pressure from advertisers or to publish a story again because of pressures from advertisers or funders. And they also had to either publish or kill a story to please political figures or not. So there is definitely external pressures from funders, from advertisers, and from politics. And the highest incidences that we got were from Uganda, followed by Kenya, and lastly, 
Tanzania. So in, in a way, we we were surprised because we had thought that uh, perhaps we would get an equal number or an equal percentage per country, but that was not the case. Uh, Joseph, you are an investigative journalist, and I'm sure you've had your fair share of uh, intimidation uh, and pressure, uh, either from uh, the you know the government or other agents uh, linked to the government. How do you cope with that in your uh, in your pursuit of uh, staying true to the values and the standards that the pro- profession requires of you? Well, when you look at uh, uh, when you look at in this report, uh, when the, the picture of uh, Kenya vis-a-vis the the picture of Uganda in Uganda, it's quite. Uh, in Uganda, it's quite, it's quite, it's quite tough. I remember an incident where I spent about five days in a police cell for a crime. I have to have never known about it until uh, the regional police commander accidentally chanced upon me during the morning parade when I was bare chested, and he was able to identify me and ask me why I was there. So in Uganda, sometimes in pursuit of these stories, we meet a lot of uh, challenges while pursuing some of these stories. And uh, sometimes it reaches uh, an extent where you you have to choose sometimes between your life and the and the story. This, you know, there are a lot of uh, we we face a lot of uh, a, a lot of threats, especially if you're investigating security matters. Sometimes you get a very good tip on a security issue, and then. Uh, you, you begin following it and you reach a, a point where you're like, no, I think I cannot do this. I can't do this maybe when I am in the country. That is a fact. Sometimes uh, we let go of some of these very, very good uh, tips and leads that uh, you get. And uh, sometimes maybe the best you can do is to pass it over to other journalists, like uh, maybe say the consortium of journalists so that they, they can pursue it there you're a bit, uh, you're, a bit, uh, you're, a bit you're, you're actually safe. So sometimes uh, in, uh, in pursuit of uh, the truth, you want to report the truth that people would love to, to know. But sometimes you fail to do it. Just like uh, I read in a paper, there is uh, Onyango Bo, one of, uh, uh, one of uh, top journalists in the continent. He wrote the other day that a paper like the Daily Monitor when it marked 30 this year, but then it might die with some of the, the secrets. A lot of secrets that he knows, but it has never published. So in Uganda, the situation is, uh, in, you know, we are between, the, the, in the there is democracy, there is, uh, there is freedom of speech, so long as you don't touch some other areas, you're free to, to mention any other thing, but there are areas which are still, which you cannot. Uh, we can actually learn into into problems. I've seen uh, a number of my friends, some were even arrested recently over these uh, roads they are constructing in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo for publishing uh, a story again as a, a company a company constructing roads. So sometimes we get side tips, but then you have to choose between should I do it and then end up somewhere or should I let it go? That's just... You know, that's a really just dire uh, situation there. Um, Rose, what are some of the innovative ways the newsrooms in the region uh, are using to kind of, you know, operate in this restrained 
uh, environments. Um, and as you rightly say, this is a very constrictive environment and newsrooms are having to be more and more creative. And Joseph has already mentioned some of the ways in which they are surviving, such as giving tips to other organizations. But one of the things that we found was what I just mentioned, the cooperative relationships between media houses. <clears throat> such that you have a network of journalists who assist each other as far as uh, gathering stories is concerned and going around such that if in Kenya there is an attack happening or there is pressure happening, then you could give the tip to your colleague in Uganda who would cover that story without fear of, uh, being, of having repercussions from the, uh, the authorities in Kenya. And I think the other uh, way that we have found, or one thing that we found in our research is also like Tanzania has been very innovative when it comes to using the online platform and using it for whistleblowing and going to the extent that you allow your users to whistleblow and maintain their anonymity. And even though government would ask for who the whistleblowers are, retaining that anonymity. And we found even in our research that one of the one of the organizers of such a platform, uh, Tony Mello, I believe, uh, has faced arrest several times because of protecting the identity of whistleblowers. But this has also made sure that quite a number of scandalous stories are exposed. And this expands the journalistic freedoms, even in dangerous times. Mm. Yeah. And, and let, let's talk about, you know, the, the other aspect, which is, uh, you, you know, training and skills. Uh, uh, to actually produce the sort of journalism that we we are we're talking about here you know quality journalism um joseph can you just talk a little bit about you know your experience um i mean are you seeing uh, are you excited about the upcoming uh journalists um i any concerns about uh, their level of uh, preparedness to actually uh, join the profession despite the um, the many challenges that you face? Maybe I, I need first to tell you, I worked in a, a radio station as a news editor. In that radio station, I was uh, paying my news reporters 500 Uganda, Uganda shillings per story. That I think is either a, a, a one, say one US cent or even less than that. So when you're paying someone 500 shillings i don't think you'll uh, attract uh, the best uh, i mean professional professional journalist you cannot someone with a university degree you cannot uh, employ him and you pay him 500,000 per, per per story so what uh, most radio stations do is to get around someone who has never gone to any journalism school and then give him the the try and, uh, give him the five W's and uh, and the H. When you give him the five W and the H, and then uh, he goes into the field. But now that kind of a person will not the kind of uh, news reports that person will be submitting is not a, uh, a report a journalism that, that answers the the so what. So in most cases, uh, radio stations are actually that's what is happening. Uh, actually, no radio station. I'm very sure if one day, you know, in Uganda, to be a journalist, you must have a, a degree by law. You must have a degree in uh, journalism 
or you have a degree in another field and a diploma in journalism. But should you, the government wake up one day and implement that law, I can assure you over 80 or 90 percent of uh, radio stations and TVs will be off air because the people who are working in them are people who have no formal training in journalism. They're basically either DJs or people, uh, you know, big trauma who just come in and then those are the guys who are manning these uh, radio stations and these television stations. So the situation is really so bad in terms of uh, training. Maybe if you talk about Kampala, yes, Kampala, there are so many diploma holders who are in this uh, radio station. But in Kampala, the very radio station pays about 5,000 shillings per story. Now, tell me how you're going to retain a graduate and you're paying a graduate 500, 500, 5,000 shillings per story. Like for my scenario where I worked, the highest paid worker would pay about uh, in a month, something like uh, 80,000 which I think is either about uh, $18 per month. Now, how do you attract uh, quality when, 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 the, when the pay is that low? So maybe we need to, uh, there's a lot that needs to be done. Across the country, uh, actually journalism, I would say, is dead. Because when you move, uh, oh. when you move across the country, all you hear is uh, entertainment news and all that. But real journalism is not there. What does that do to a country. Let, let's talk about the impact of the absence of, you know, quality journalism. What does that do to the country? Of course, it's very terrible because when you look at uh, the corruption uh, cases uh, that are going on in districts, in the tendering process, in everything, there are no people to report about them. People are basically attending workshops because if a person is uh, unskilled, what they usually do, they're also poorly paid. So what they always do is to look for where there is a workshop. Because in a workshop, you're sure you're going to sign some uh, per diem, uh, an allowance at the end of uh, the day. So journalists move around town looking for, asking each other, have you seen where, do you know where there is a workshop? So where there is a workshop is where you find uh, several of them gathered in. But to do these enterprising stories, they do not do so. Uh, what it, the impact of it, you know, uh, an enlightened uh, society that has uh, information is is better in decision making. So, in the in terms of decision making, it has affected a lot because now we can't uh, enlighten the public, we can't give them the information that would help them make informed uh, decisions. Because all what uh, the journalists are reporting on are these workshop stories, and then maybe a politician takes you where he's distributing maybe books, maybe a textbook, he has given something, he has given a, a, a goal to, to maybe a local community, and that is what we basically, uh, people are reporting as news. So to, in terms of a country, it is affecting a lot, even in the development process, because we are not uh, reporting on aspects of development. That would help uh, you know, spur the growth of the country. If you, if you could be able to investigate and then expose some of these hurdles that is preventing the country from developing. Mm. Um, uh, Rose, I'll, I'll be, I'm very much interested in your view in the, in the, on the same question. And also, you know, the impact that the pandemic had on delivering quality journalism. Yes, definitely. Thank you. And I actually find it quite interesting that uh, Joseph has mentioned the fact that the people now in the media industry are not necessarily trained. And this is an aspect that uh, we were discussing quite recently, that the people who seem to be either anchoring or hosting a lot of programs, especially when it comes to radio in the Kenyan market, 
also tend to be not the trained journalists, but more of uh, what we should call entertainers. And there's quite some discouragement going around also when you talk to media students who ask, then why should I bother studying if my position will be given to someone who is funnier than I am? So, but anyway, that is just as an aside. Um, and I think the impact of this low pay on quality journalism uh, Joseph has already outlined quite a bit. And I think the other thing would be that it also affects the slant of the stories or the kinds of stories that are covered, such that uh, the there is not much analysis that takes place. The stories are reported more in he said, she said format, but with no analysis about what does it mean for you? What does it mean for the citizens of this country and how should we hold our leaders to account? And I'm glad that uh, there are a few training programs coming up which are focusing on upskilling journalists who are already in the field, um, just on how to up their game, on how to make sure that they are uh, reporting in a quality way. And uh, yeah, just focusing on constructive journalism, and it's, yeah, but this, of course, is still, the offer is quite limited still. I would say that it's not yet available in all three countries, but we are getting somewhere as well. The focus on media and information literacy, uh, just talking to audiences, finding out, uh, training audiences to better understand media content and better evaluate it when they receive it and not to take everything wholesale. And this is now where also fact-checking comes in. Again, training journalists to fact-check and also just sharing the fact-checking websites with audiences. So um, going to COVID and what kind of impact it had as far as journalism quality is concerned. I think that um, one, it forced a move to digital platforms faster than was planned for. But the other thing that happened is that journalists were faced with challenges in sourcing stories because they could not access their sources as easily as before. And what that meant was that the same people who are available for program A tended to be the same people available for program B. So there was a repetition of the same perspectives in news programs, which was unfortunate uh, because especially in a pandemic, people need fresh information. They need, or actually not just a pandemic, in a crisis, people need fresh information. And this is the time when more voices were needed, but unfortunately there were fewer voices in news programs, especially. There were also changes in procedures in uh, media houses where we saw journalists reporting from their houses, from their kitchens, um, because they could no longer go to the office. And now this also exposed the nature of how we are doing in East Africa as far as equipment is concerned, that we may have good equipment in the media house, but not necessarily available to the journalists on the ground. Then there was also withdrawal of several programs and content because some advertisers pulled out. And this again led to a low morale for journalists. And at the same time, the journalists were having to work with fewer resources, but produce more stories. And at the same time, facing challenges in news gathering and sourcing. They were also dealing with changes in their work shifts where you have to work 
longer shifts. And all this led to quite an amount of pressure on journalists. And one of the impacts that we are seeing now is a rise in mental health issues uh, among journalists, so to speak. But at the same time, it was a small cloud, a small uh, light, silver lining in the cloud is that now I find that there are more forums where journalists are willing to talk about mental health and just talking about how do we take care of ourselves uh, even as we try to serve society in telling them what is happening around us. So there, there were quite a number of minuses in the pandemic, but I think it also stretched the capacity of journalists and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing how things evolve as we move into the post-pandemic world. Well, as you're reading the highlights, one of the things that you mentioned uh, was diversity, uh, where um, many newsrooms are still male-dominated. Uh, what is the barrier, Joseph? Why are newsrooms not diverse? Why, why are we not seeing uh, newsrooms reflect the societies that they cover? Maybe one would be in terms of uh, resilience. resilience. Actually, men, uh, based on I have worked both up country and I've also worked uh, in Kampala. But now when you go uh, up country, you know, women tend not to, women cannot persevere to this kind of uh, a situation where you're paying someone maybe $15 in a month. And uh, despite being paid $15, we expected them also to work like people who are, who are well paid. Sometimes traveling into those very harsh uh, environments, you can, at times you can get here, uh, women do come, but after one or two or three, four months down the road, they, 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 they take off. Yes, I think it's important to also realize that women face additional barriers, apart from what you've mentioned about the repressive, um, let's say repressive regimes, the same women will be competing with men who may not have to deal with issues of sexual harassment, who may not have to deal with particular threats to them and their safety. So I think that we need to also keep in mind that there are extra barriers that women face in this profession. What, what external support is uh, uh, probably the, you know, the media innovation uh, at Aga Khan looking into uh, around trying to get more women uh, not just in Uganda, but probably across the region, to join newsrooms and also engaging, uh, you know, newsrooms leaders to uh, ensure that newsrooms are safe spaces for for women to join. I mean, are there yeah. any reach outs that uh, you're doing that you'd like to share? Yes, actually, the Media Innovation Center, which is part of who spearheaded this research at the Aga Khan, has been funding innovators for the past three years now and uh, where if you have your innovative idea whether you're male or female uh, whether you're young or old uh, you you respond to the call for applications and then you get the chance to get a residency for a whole year to develop your idea and uh, push it forward and during that time when you're in that residency you get training on journalism quality you get training on finances you get training on what a newsroom should look like if you're going to run a newsroom. You also, uh, recently we also had a forum where the women innovators sat together and just talked about the special challenges that they face uh, in the media industry, in the innovation industry. Uh, the Aga Khan University also offers uh, 
uh, training programs specifically for journalists, part of which I had already mentioned. And they also offer a training for media managers uh, on running newsrooms, on newsrooms of the future. And it's a whole one-year program where media managers log in and uh, get to exchange ideas and get to challenge themselves on what practices are there in their newsrooms and what are they doing better that they can do. At the same time as part of this project, we have what we call media viability consultancies, where there are particular people who have been trained in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanzania, to evaluate media houses and to sit down with media managers and media staff to look at media houses and see where are we as far as our innovativeness is concerned? Where are we as far as our gender policies are concerned? And how can we develop some of these documents? How can we implement some of these policies in our media houses? And so these media viability consultants are actually available to media houses at a fee. And um, if one is interested, they can reach out to us. And uh, the viability consultants are there to support media houses in the long term on their journey to making sure that they remain viable in this quite challenging media landscape that we are facing in East Africa at the moment, or actually globally, not just East Africa. Thank you for that. I think my my main takeaway from this is, you know, we, when we talk, up, we talk about innovation, uh, it's not necessarily those uh, shiny, uh, you know, tech gadgets and platforms, but more it should be you know going back to the basics you know great storytelling um in ways that um, uh, engage uh, and also relate to um, the experience of the people that uh, media organizations are um are reporting on and are reporting for and that uh, you know there will be rewards in terms of trust and probably in the in the long run you know uh, subscriptions as as well. Uh, Joseph, I'll just give you one minute, if you don't mind, to kind of respond to that uh, as we close. Well, uh, not when it's lost, especially I, I also do lecture, but when you look at uh, like uh, in uh, at institutional level, these inst- institutes, there are actually more female uh, students compared to men. So the question then may be how <laughs> what will happen after they have left the, the, the journalism school. But when you look at in most institutes uh, in Kampala, there are more female journalists compared to the men. So maybe uh, the future may be in uh, uh, maybe three, four years, we may have find more female journalists uh, in the field. The, however, however, what I've also noticed is that many of them do not wish to do reporting. All of them, when you talk to them, they're like, I want to do public relations. That is what is in their mind. So it is quite uh, still a challenge. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And that's a challenge as well to the uh, established media organizations to to attract them, you know, the, the thousands of talent that is currently going through media schools and, you know, make space for them and hopefully um, also, uh, you know, uh, be able to pay them in ways that they can be retained on the job uh, and be able to, uh, you know, to, to be the, the great journalists that they are aspiring to be. Thank you for listening. This episode is part of a series looking at a new comprehensive research by the Media Innovation Center at the Aga Khan University in Nairobi in collaboration with the DW Academy, focusing on media viability in three East African countries. Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. I am Dickens Olewe.